I'm reading this morning from Malachi 3, 7 through 12. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we exalt your name this morning, for you are the king. And for God, Father God, we praise you that you are the king from the rising of the sun to its setting. Whether people acknowledge you as the king or not, you are still the king. We praise you, Lord God, that you are the one who has been on the move to redeem a people for yourself from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That they would fall down on their knees and confess that you are the Lord. Father God, we pray as we've been spending this time in Malachi, Lord, week after week, seeing this barren tree, Father God, we pray that you would move by the power of your spirit through your word to do a work in us, Father God, that we would not be barren, but that we would be a people that would produce much good fruit for your glory. Lord God, that as a congregation, as you plant the word and you, you, you plant the seed, Father, we would produce 100-fold, Father, even 1,000-fold, Father, for your glory. God, that we would be a place that, Lord, by your spirit, God, we genuinely can, can come to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength that we can genuinely love our neighbors as ourselves, that we would worship you for who you are and not who we want to imagine you to be, that we would trust in you and rest in you and believe in you and exercise faith in you and obey you in things great and small. Father God, do a work in us here at Grace Community Church, Lord God, that we would be, as the early church was, devoted to the right teaching of your word. God, that we would be hungry to get into your word, to know it, to obey it. That we would be devoted to prayer. Lord God, that we would come to you, Father, with our needs, with our concerns, with confession, with thanksgiving, with intercession for believers here at home and around the globe. Lord God, that we would be committed to the fellowship. That we would love and support each other, Father God. And indeed, we pray that you would add to our number daily those who are being saved, that you would magnify your name in our midst. Lord God, this morning, I especially lift up Isaac to you, Lord God. I pray that you would give the doctors that are looking at him this morning, even now, wisdom. I pray for healing for him. 
I pray, Father God, for comfort and encouragement for him, for his parents. I pray, Lord Jesus, that he would be healthy and strong. God, I pray for those who are struggling, Lord, and receiving treatment for cancer. Lord God, I pray for physical endurance for the reminder of your shepherding, comforting presence. I pray, Lord God, for for opportunities for gospel conversations, Lord, even with physicians and nurses that are, are treating them. And I pray, God, for healing and for you to be glorified. God, we come now to a text that has been misused rampantly in American culture. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to hear your word rightly and to worship you faithfully. We have salt in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you know, I always remember it was 2004, and I was there, you know, I was a youth director at the time, and I was there and, uh, at a staff meeting, and we were trying to have this conversation as a staff on what the next teaching series was going to be. And so we're there, and we're talking, and, you know, we're reflecting on the life of the church, what we think the church, quote-unquote, needs to hear, which is always an awkward place to start. Um, talking about what the teaching series had been historically. The time this church I was serving at was not a church that kind of embraced expositional preaching the way we do. It was one of those, we did topical series after topical series kind of approaches. And uh, just looking at the calendar of what had been taught the last number of years, one of the, one associate pastor, he says, I think we should do at least a couple sermons on stewardship and on giving. And at this point, the whole contour of the staff meeting erupted. And the, normal, the normally rather mild-mannered, you know, senior pastor slams his hand on the table and says, no, we can't. We can't talk about money. And it's like I dropped my sandwich on the ground. I'm like, what's going on? We can't do that. And he'd been at the same church for about 40 years, and he said, studies have shown that the number one reason people don't want to come to church is because we talk about money. We can never talk about money. Okay, can I go home now? I'll take a half day. And over time, began to try to, like, in a safe way, peel out what was going on here. And he said, well, you know what? He, he, he expressed a feeling that even if I disagreed with his conclusion, I could understand his sentiment that here we are in, again, you know, the, the 20th century America, we have had texts like Malachi 3 so abused by pre- some preachers, particularly health and wealth gospel preachers, that it's hard for us to hear it afresh. Because for some of us, particularly depending if, on what your background may be, we hear it through the lens of what we've heard. And, and we start to maybe twitch. And because we have stories a lot of us, we have stories of the preacher who, you know, really demanded heavy-handedly that people would give in such a way, and then he stole the church's funds and he ran off. And so it's hard for us to hear texts like these. Or we have heard stories. I can think of one um, a church I pastored in Georgia. We were not very far from Creflo Dollar's church. And yes, that's his name, Creflo Dollar. And... Um, and in Creflo's church, I can remember, you know, around the time I was there, it was a mega church, and it was ironic that the bookkeeper to his church ended up coming to our church, which was awkward and interesting, giving us some insight. 
And she shared with us, you know, and, and so we heard firsthand stories. While I was there, Creflo got up one Sunday, and I've told the story to some people, and he said, if you were not driving at least a Ford Expedition, you were not fully sanctified. And that made me feel awkward, because I drove a Ford Expedition. <laughs> and so I felt kind of guilty, like, do I keep it and say, oh, thank you, Lord, or do I get rid of it and get, you know, a, a prelude? I don't know. It'd be hard to fit the kids in that. I don't know. And so we've heard that, and we come to, te- and, 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 and so I've heard other preachers, because of statements like that, they're almost afraid to talk about giving as the preacher, because they don't want to get associated with some of these televangelists. And on the flip side, some people, we don't want to hear the conversation, because we've been wounded or put off by the televangelists. And for some of us, we have a lot of guilt and hurt and shame, because we have been made to feel like we have to give to some rich pastor instead of buying our children shoes. And yet, this is the word of God. And it's a fact that Jesus speaks more about money than he does about hell. And so we have to, di- we have to differentiate what is true from what is false caricature. So is an example. One prominent, I, am not, I disagree with everything this quotation embodies. Let me just be very clear. One prominent health and wealth gospel preacher, Kenneth Copeland, writes, quote, In tithing you are laying a foundation of financial security and abundance. You are establishing deposits with God which can be used when you need them. So here's your fun homework assignment. I want you to take that home over lunch, and I want to, and I want to see who can win, because it's all about winning. How many things are wrong with that statement? And if you think you can come up with the most, email me this week and tell me, and I'll give you a prize. It sounds awkward too, doesn't it? Well, how many things are wrong with that statement? There are numerous ones. The main one I want to point out is the overarching assumption that it's all about us, which we talked about at the beginning of this series. For him, tithing is not a matter of worship, it's a matter of investment. It's not about God's glory, it's about achieving personal security. It's not about the advancement of God's kingdom, it's about the advancement of our kingdom. It's not about sacrificing your resources for the love of your neighbor, it's about increasing your own resources for personal need and use. The health and wealth gospel preacher calls you to give, give, give so that you can get, get, get. That's the formula. Giving isn't about the Lord of hosts, the God who loved you enough to die in your place for your sins, to reconcile you to God and to give you a new identity in Christ. In fact, the very quest for security really seems like it has no basis in the New Testament, does it? No basis. Where we see the apostles taking their lives in their hands to further the work of the gospel. And where we see Jesus Christ say, foxes have holds and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. If we want to be faithful to the Lord, we need to talk about money. And we need to talk about giving because it's in his word. But we have to do so according to what he says and not according to the false presuppositions and faulty exegesis of a number of popular preachers. 
For some of us who have been personally wounded by the false prophets of wealth, even this morning we might need to ask God to heal our hearts and to give us the grace to be free from their deception and instead to embrace his truth. So I was writing the sermon this week and I had 10 points. And then I thought 10 points would keep you here till noon, which would be awesome for me. But maybe not for you. So, so we're really going to take two weeks because I want you to see as we go through Malachi 3 that there are some things about Malachi 3. I want us to see the original context. And I want us to see that there are some similarities between what Malachi 3 meant for them 2,500 years ago and what they mean for us today. But then there are some significant differences. And I'm going to preach it in view to what I consider false teaching on this subject. So you are equipped to deny the false teachers and equipped to help others rebuke them. Because the fact of the matter is, is that the health and wealth gospel is the greatest gospel that America is currently exporting to the rest of the world. And that is tragic. So we'll keep you here for a few minutes. One, we're going to see that giving is a part of worship. Verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me the whole nature of you. That's a striking phrase, isn't it? To have, have, have the Lord, the living God, the Lord of hosts, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, say, you are robbing me. It's not the normal word we use in the Hebrew for, for rob. This word, the synonyms would be to oppress, to pillage, to plunder. And that just sounds kind of shocking if we're honest. How can you plunder something that belongs to Jesus? How can you pillage God's property? It's actually rather confusing. And yet the more we delve into the Old Testament, I think we see a rather clear answer. By failing to give God what is already his, which they have been given to steward properly, and which they have failed to use as he has called them. That's how they're plundering what belongs to God. They're not acknowledging it as having come from him. They're not using it as he has called them to. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. God owns everything in this world. God owns every dollar, every stock, every euro, every bond, every house, every car. The shampoo you used this morning belongs to the living God. The bed that you slept in last night belongs to the living God. The sleeping bags collecting dust. The treadmills you bought with good intention but sit in the basement, hidden. All belong to the living God. It's all God's. And in fact, this is, I'm just going to pause, this is one of the remarkable differences that, that, that begins to change our understanding of what we own. There are times in which I have had the blessed privilege of meeting a believer, and they say something like, well, it's God's house, or it's God's car. And that may sound like a simple statement, but it amazes me when I have met someone where I see that statement lived out. 
Because when that statement is actually lived out, it reflects a much different heart condition. Not a condition that holds on to things with I need to keep, 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 but a condition that holds everything with a loose hand and says, it's God's anyways. It belongs to him. And yeah, you can use it. And yeah, you can break it. And yeah, you can have it because it's really not mine. It's his. It's a beautiful heart condition. The Mosaic Covenant stipulated a series of offerings that people would make to the living God. They're called, here they're called tithes and contributions. Giving your tithes and contributions under the Mosaic Covenant was a part and parcel of worship. It was a primary part of worship. And so the tithes was a mandatory 10%. The contributions are what we might call above and beyond giving. The tithes were mandated. The, the contributions were kind of optional. And, and it is interesting to note that depending on which Old Testament scholar you read, some of them will make the case that there were actually multiple 10% tithes in the Old Testament. And that you could actually have someone giving 30% of their income to the living God, whether that was the income of the field or, or income that you, know, you could hold in your hand. The money and the goods were used to fund the Levites and the ministry that God called them to in the law. They were used to support the festivals. You know, if you read the Old Testament, you see God gives several festivals, regular, that, that required some money to buy for. The, the, the funds went, the tithe went to care for the poor and to pay for temple worship. In some ways, it's actually not altogether different. If you go into an average evangelical church today, you can boil down the budget into three categories. People, programs, and buildings. And, and you can almost see how th there's, there's some similarity there. So we see that everything we have is from God, and God has called them to use their resources in a way that worshiped him, and yet they are not doing it. Verse 10 makes it clear that God is giving, the Israelites rather, are giving them something but not, not the full tithe. So maybe it was 1%, maybe it was 7%, maybe it was half of a half percent. I don't know, they were, they were giving something but not everything that God was asking them for. It's probably actually a lot like we saw earlier in Malachi. If you remember, this, remember, early in Malachi, we saw God chastising the priests in particular. And he said, you're bringing me diseased animals. Would your governor accept that? Would your boss accept that? And, and in some ways, we see the same idea here. They're bringing something, but not what's required. So, so it's not like they can be told, well, you haven't done anything. Like, well, we're doing something. But, but it's not what God has specifically required in the law. You might say that they're bringing God their leftovers instead of their first fruits. They're bringing him what they have left after they've had their choice meals, after they've had, had their, their company, after they've done what we want. Well, that's the animal. It's not worth anything. Let's give God that. And the same way here, with their tithes and contributions, they're giving God something, but they're not, they're not giving him their first fruits. And this is a heart fight that we see begin with the story of Cain and Abel. When Abel comes and he brings the first fruit of his flock, and it is, and it is promoted as an act of great faith, because he didn't know if there was going to be another one. 
And the firstborn was the most valuable one. And so it was this step of great faith to say, God, here you go. I trust you. And Cain brought something. He did bring an offering, and we're told, though, that God took no pleasure in that offering, which confuses us. Some have hated this passage, and we we struggle with this passage because we think, well, he brought God something, but the something he bought was not coupled with faith. It was not coupled with faith, among other things. And so the question we all have to ask is, are we giving God our best as an act of worship? Or are we giving what we have when everything is left over that no one else would treasure? Around Thanksgiving a few years ago, radio commentator Paul Harvey, he talked about this great story. It was uh, around Thanksgiving time. And the Butterball Turkey Company, you can guess what they make. The Butterball Turkey Company did this hotline. I think they were trying to ramp up business. So they did this hotline leading up to Thanksgiving that you could call the Butterball Turkey Company for questions about how to make the best turkey you've ever made before. Sounds like something from, you know, a Martha Stewart magazine. Well, one woman called in to inquire about cooking a turkey that had been in the bottom of her freezer for 23 years. That's right, 23 years. Well, the Butterball representative told her that the turkey would probably be safe to eat if for the entirety of that 23 years, her freezer was below freezing. But she said, she warned her and said that even if it was safe to eat, after 23 years, the flavor would probably have deteriorated to such a degree. She said, I just recommend that you don't eat it. And this is why this made the news. The caller replied, that's what I thought. I'll give it to my church. (laughs) And I read that story and I laughed. And then I got kind of sad because I thought, I guess I really shouldn't be laughing at this because what's the heart attitude underneath that? I'm happy to offer something to God if it has no value to me or to anyone else. I won't offer him my best. I'll offer him my leftovers that I would be embarrassed to serve to company. He's worth that. It's the heart attitude. We can all bring to God whatever we're talking about, whether we're talking about our wealth or our service or our time or our hearts. The Israelites were giving God their leftovers in worship, not what he commanded, and they were, in fact, being cursed for it. God had promised in the law. It's one of these things we've got to remember. The God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament is the same God. God has always called the people by grace, according to himself. He called Abraham by grace out of his pagan land. He called called them to himself by grace, met them in Egypt, led them through the Exodus. But then at Sinai, he gives them the law. Grace came before the law. Without getting into a greater narrative, we always need to remember that. And yet there at Sinai, in the giving of the Mosaic Covenant, he says, Now, this is what you can do to be blessed, and this is what you can do to be cursed. I will bless obedience, and I will curse disobedience. And so we see, I think it's in Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 29, we see this this series of blessings and curses for either obedience or disobedience. 
and the Israelites, who were going to be an were an agricultural people that had a feature in it. God promised specifically if they gave of their tithes and offerings that he would, he would bless the land. And yet if they did not, he would strike the land with blight due to lack of rain or the locusts who would devour the crops. And here we see him in Malachi chapter 3 admitting that they are currently reaping what they have sown. And it's worth remembering that it was not about the money in and of itself. God didn't need their money. He already owned their money. It wasn't their money to begin with, right? We already saw that. It wasn't his money. It wasn't their money. It was his money. They just happened to be holding on to it. it the issue wasn't about money. It was about worship. It was about whether or not God was, God was going to be faithful to the promises of the covenant that he had made and that they had said, yes, we will obey. In many ways, this is a, a, God is being faithful and just, even in giving these, this curse on the land. And so we see that giving is a part of worship. It's a part of worship for the nation of Israel. It's a part of worship under the Mosaic Covenant. And when we begin to see that, that giving is a part of worship, we begin to see how the health and wealth gospel gets it all wrong from start to finish. Because for them, it's not about God, it's about us. Joyce Meyer says, quote, If you stay in your faith, you are going to get paid. Really? There's some statements that I read and I just, I put, I'm incredulous. I, I don't even know where to begin. And it's hard to get a preacher speechless, but I can get speechless pretty easy with statements like that. If you stay in the faith, you're going to get paid. Theologians Russell Woodbridge and David Jonas from Southeastern write, quote, The prosperity gospel's doctrine of giving is built on faulty motives. Whereas Jesus taught his disciples to lend, expecting nothing in return. Luke 6.35, prosperity theologians teach their disciples to give so that they will get a great return. See the difference there? Are we, are, are we giving to get something for us? Is it about us or is it about God? And in fact, for some of us, even if we would rightly reject some of these false teachers, we might say that we struggle to give to the Lord because we are struggling to get out of the box that says it's about us. We're thinking about us rather than thinking about him and his call on our lives. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who has given you the power to get wealth. It's a beautiful verse. We remember that when we give and we, we are worshiping when we give and we are acknowledging that it is the living God who's given us the education, the connections, the skills, the aptitude, the abilities to gain wealth. And so it becomes an act of thanksgiving. Two, text reminds us that giving is ultimately a heart issue. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. It's not about their money. It's about their heart. And again, I hate, I've heard preachers, they use this part of the text, and they try to bully us into this, like, faith, I gotta have faith, I gotta have faith. And as if, like, 
we're, we're, we're like putting you know, a Band-Aid over the problem. No, it's really, the issue is really our heart. Look at here in this text. The, the, the statement for the Israelites is, will they trust God to be who he says he is? I mean, look at the heart of God. Here, the sovereign ruler of the universe is inviting mere mortals to test him. You see that? He's saying, test me. And how is he challenging them to test him? He's saying, test me to see if I am Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Test me to see if that's who I am. He wants them to know that he is the God who knows what they need before they ask, who has number, knows the number of the hairs on their head, and who does not give his children rocks when they cry out for bread. In this case, they are clearly not giving him the full tithe commanded under the old covenant because they do not trust God to meet their needs. They think that he has commanded them to do an act of worship that they are not capable of doing. And even though we're going to see as we continue to tease this out this week and in two weeks, there are some differences between our context and theirs, some significant differences. And yet this part is the same heart fight that humanity will always face. Do we trust God? Do we trust God in general, let alone do we trust God to provide? Do we trust him to meet our needs? And perhaps like me, you can relate to that predicament. This is going to be Pastoral Confession 101 this morning. There have been times in my life when I have been the Israelites in Malachi chapter 3. And the dentist bill for the kids came. Or the unexpected tax bill came. The car repair bill that was unexpected came. The mortgage payment was due. And I sat there and I thought, there is no way we can do this. Where are you, God? And I will confess and tell you there have been more times than I would like to admit where I have not trusted God to provide. Where I have thought I cannot give as part of my worship because I need this to do X, Y, or Z. I've been there. Here they are, and I imagine that's exactly how the Israelites felt. Here they are in the land suffering the results of the curse because of their failure to live up to the covenant obligations, and yet they, and they feel like they cannot afford a tithe. It's really ironic, isn't it? They feel like they have so little financially, they cannot afford to worship God. And yet, because of the Mosaic Covenant, the reason that they feel like they don't have enough to worship God is because they have not obeyed the covenant in the first place. You see how it's inverted? Under the covenant? They probably felt like it wasn't worth it to practice above and beyond contributions because, well, what has God done for me lately? As we saw in chapter 1. It was a faith test. It was a heart issue. In a real sense, their failure to give was not the, the main sin. There was a sin behind that sin. That was the fruit of the sin. The root of the sin was a... This is the voice. Wow. The root sin was a failure to trust the living God. That was the root sin. And here God is inviting them to test him so that they will see who he is. You can feel the heart of God in his desire to bless faithfulness. You can almost hear him. Come on. Let's settle this. 
Let me show you who I am. Let me show you how aware I am of your needs. Let me show you my abundant desire to provide, to care, to shepherd you. You can see the good shepherd we see all throughout the scripture saying, I'm going to take care of you. Let me prove it to you. Have you ever been in that situation with someone where they have doubted you and you've just said, let me prove it to you. Let me show you who I am. Give me the chance. Give me the chance to show you who I really am and what I really feel. Let me show you my love and faithfulness. Let me prove it to you. That is the heart of God in this passage. And it is amazing because it reminds us of who he is. Here they are living in rebellion, complaining to him as if it's all his fault. And he's saying, let me show you who I really am. I haven't left. I won't let you down. Third thing we see is that God blesses generosity. Verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. You know, people often say that the best lie is 99% true. And I don't know if that's true. It's a clever statement. But I think it's got some truth to it. And in this case, the nugget of truth that the health and wealth gospel gets right, it's the 1% truth is, yes, God does bless generosity. I don't think he blesses it the way they think he blesses it. And I'm fairly certain he doesn't promise to bless it the way they say he promises to bless it. But, but, but we see just the big picture theme right, right here in this text. I will rebuke the devourer for you. Give as I've called you to give and watch what I do. I, I, will, I will get rid of the locusts. I will send the rain. I will make the soil fertile. And all of a sudden you have everything that you need. I love that. The difference between abundance, right? Before we read that quote, abundance. Here God's saying, well, I'm going to give you everything you need. Difference there as well. They will be blessed for giving according to the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. God is promising that. What I find interesting, though, is I think that if we stop there, we miss the fullness. Because I think God is promising in verse 10 a greater blessing, a much greater blessing than a financial one. The greatest part of their blessing will be that they will know the Lord for who he is. The flow of this passage is not wonder over the things that God would give his people, but the relationship that he wants to have with his people and the revelation to his people of his character and his love and his compassion and his provision. Again, he is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. They will, they will know him as the God who hears their cry. They will know him as the one who reigns over the created order and can, again, send the rain and expel the locust. They will know him as the one who causes the rising and the fall of the nations. They will know him as the Lord, their hope, and their help. That is the greatest blessing God is promising in this passage, that you will know me as the good shepherd. And again, here's, here's the important heart question for us, for every one of us under heaven that claims to be a Christian. Do we worship God for who he is? Or do we worship him for what we want him to give us? 
Do we worship him because he's the most perfectly loving, just, mercifully gracious, and all-powerful being in the universe who has demonstrated his worth in creation at the cross and one day in glory? Or do we worship him because we're looking for a cosmic vending machine? I think the Israelites were looking for the latter. I think the health and wealth gospel teachers are looking for the latter. It's a powerful question. It's a personal question that we often feel when the rubber meets the road in our fight of faith. Are we worshiping God for who he is? Or are we worshiping him for what we want? The moment Judas saw that Jesus was not going to make him wealthy and powerful was the moment Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas was very happy. Right? He followed Jesus for three years. He walked with him. He talked with him. He ate with him. He was happy to be known as a Christ follower for three years. And the moment when it stops for him is when he realizes he's serious about going to the cross. He's serious about dying for what he says, the sins of all who will believe. I'm done. It's time for me to get mine. He was not following Jesus for who Jesus was and what Jesus came was heaven sent to come and accomplish. He was following Jesus for what he thought Jesus could give him. The book of Habakkuk begins in many ways. I think the same context as Malachi. We have this complaint. The difference between Habakkuk and Malachi is Habakkuk comes around. Whereas in Malachi, I don't know that the people of Israel by and large do. And Habakkuk puts it beautifully in chapter 3. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Can you say that with Habakkuk? If you can't, would you be willing to ask God to help you say that with Habakkuk? If you, even if it's yes to the second question, then today is a great day. Because it is a great moment in the sight of God to acknowledge your need for him. Again, I love how... how my dead homeboy, Jonathan Edwards, puts it when he says, command what thou will, will what thou command. God, there's a moment of faith when we say, God, I cannot be of myself the person you call me to be, but I want to be, and I want to have that faith, and I want to have that trust in you. Do a work in my heart. Help me overcome my unbelief. That, if that is where you are today and you can say that, then it's the beginning of a great day. And I would challenge you, pray that every day. And ask the Lord to work on your heart. God promised to bless the people of Israel so that they would be without need. But the greatest gift he was really offering them was himself. A relationship with a just, compassionate, faithful provider and king. Four, we have to 
see that the text reminds us that context is king. We spent the morning talking about three specific themes in this text. And I'm going to give you a preview into two weeks from now. Two weeks from now, you're going to see that these three themes we've already looked at are normative. And we're going to see that in 2 Corinthians. That giving is still a part of worship. That giving is still a heart issue. And that God still blesses generosity. That said... There are some significant contextual differences between Malachi 3 and our world today. The, the, what, the, the, the overarching, those three broad themes have not changed, but the specific application has changed. And I'm trying to be really brief here, but I think we need to see that it is the health and wealth gospels movement failure to appreciate the contextual differences which leads to their false teaching. It's a, it's a, if you really want to get nerdy, it's a hermeneutical failure. They fail to understand the covenants and the difference between the covenants. So, for example, Kenneth Copeland writes, Since God's covenant has been established and prosperity is a provision of this covenant, you need to realize that prosperity is yours now. Creflo Dollar writes, quote, God has to prosper you. I love when we say that God has to do something. That, that is just a really, anyway. God has to prosper you because of the covenant he has established with you. Can you see how there is this assumption that we live under the same covenant as the Israelites did in Malachi chapter 3? And that because of that, if we give we are guaranteed blessing. Is this making sense? Sometimes I feel remarkably obtuse up here. Okay. Someone laugh. That's good. If the word obtuse doesn't make you laugh, I don't know what will. So, all right. For starters, financial prosperity is not in view in the Mosaic Covenant per se. I'm splitting hairs. What God is promising to them through Malachi is that they will be without need. So again, first difference, we're talking about an agricultural society. God does not say, and I'm going to make your 401k 10 times greater. It's not what he says. We don't live, I mean, I, there may be a few of us who are farmers in this room, but by and large, we are not. God is promising, yeah, the, the, the soil is going to produce and the ground is going to produce. And all of that is a backdrop of the entire promise within the Mosaic Covenant, which really brings us to, to the deeper difference. We are not living under the Mosaic Covenant. God's command to them to offer tithes and contributions and to bless or curse in reaction to whether or not they gave those tithes and contributions was part and parcel of the covenant. We live under the new covenant that was anticipated in the Old Testament and which Jesus himself inaugurated at the, you know, he, he talked about it at the Last Supper, and then he inaugurates it through his death and his resurrection. And so specifically applying the blessings or the curses of the Mosaic Covenant, I think is problematic for us today. Because we don't live under that covenant. Now, there is much good teaching in that covenant, and Lord willing, if I'm here long enough, I will preach for a year on Deuteronomy, and it will be a great ride. Because it's still the word of God. 
and yet there are some specific differences. You know, and, and we, see, we know this when we read the scriptures. I mean, think about it for a minute. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, Jesus says, take a staff on you when you go on a journey. That is his command to the disciples. Did any of you bring a staff this morning? Will any of you feel uncomfortable if I told you that you've disobeyed God because you did not bring a staff? I hope someone says yes. I mean, it sounds like we're not talking about something significant, but we are. We're talking about obeying or disobeying God. We are talking about something significant. And I think, so we understand, okay, that is a, con Jesus gave them, that was a contextual command that we, I think, in, hopefully, innately, we understand, okay, I don't have to find a way to get some big staff into the Prius on the way to church in the morning. We understand that. And in the same way, we can look, and it is important for us to understand the Mosaic Covenant and to understand what it reveals about the character of God, but we must remember that we praise God. Do not live under the Mosaic Covenant today. Finally, we see God's offering for us in the text. We've seen God's challenge in this passage. I mean, again, the language of that challenge is piercing. Test me. Test me. Come on. I mean, it's almost like God is he's challenging them, right? And I read that, and I am instantly taken to another time. God challenges us in a similar way. In Isaiah chapter 1. Come now. Let's settle this. God sounds like a prize fighter. Come on. Let's settle this. Though your sins are like scarlet. They shall become white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make, you will become white as wool. Our greatest need is something that will take away our sin. Something that will, someone that will cleanse us of our guilt and our shame and remove the judgment that we rightly stand under. For we are sinners by nature and by choice. We have sinned by what we have done. We have sinned by what we have failed to do. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not loved the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We have not worshipped God for who he is. We have trusted in ourselves to provide for our needs and not him. We need our sin to be taken away and we cannot do it. And just about every other religion in the world says, this is the way you can deal with your problem, whether they call it a sin problem or not. And God says, this is the way you do it. Trust me. Trust me to be who I am and to do what I said I was going to do. Let's settle this. Will we have faith in the love of God poured out through the cross of Christ? Jesus Christ worshipped the Father by making an offering. It was the greatest offering this world has ever seen. Jesus Christ worshiped the Father by offering up his body in our place for our sins that we could be reconciled to the living God, transformed from rebels into children of the Lord Most High. With the curse removed, Instead to experience blessing. In fact, all over this passage in Malachi, I see a reversal of the curse in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, the ground is going to be cursed and the land is going to be cursed. And here we see God looking forward and saying, I'm going to reverse it. I'm going to bless you. There's an overtone there. 
God, the son's heart, was perfectly right before God so much that he was able to lay his life down in our place. By his stripes we have been healed. By his wounds we have been set free. By his blood we have been made clean. Let this be the day where you rejoice in the perfect offering that God the Son gave to God the Father to cleanse you of your sin, to rid you of your shame and disgrace, and to bring you back into God's arms. Christ's work of redemption is the greatest act of worship, the greatest offering the world will ever know. Let's respond to it today in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you are the king. And Father, indeed, we pray that you would give us confidence, that you'd give us the ability to trust that your blood can make us clean and pure. Give us the ability to trust that your love and your grace is greater than our sin. Give us the ability to let go of the felt need we have to justify ourselves before your throne and instead to rest in the justification worked at Calvary. We pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. stand together and be dismissed. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine on you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you in favor and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.